0: Have you given much thought to the economic war that rages behind the scenes of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine? I'm sure you've read plenty about sanctions. Maybe you know that the likes of McDonald's and Starbucks have left Russia. And you've probably seen some headlines about Europe struggling to break its energy dependence on Russia. But unless you work in this field, it's easy to underappreciate how crucial the economic war between Russia and the West is to the wider conflict that has destroyed the post-Cold War peace with Moscow. So on this week's show, I sat down with the author of a new book about how the West has used its clout and privileged position with international markets to deter and penalize the Kremlin for its aggression against Ukraine. It's war by other means, in other words. The book is called Economic War, Ukraine, and the Global Conflict Between Russia and the West, and the author is Maximilian Hess. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. I recorded this week's interview a day before I went and got three vaccines injected into my left arm all at once. I got the flu shot, uh, the latest COVID shot, and some pneumonia shot because my delicate Californian constitution has never really agreed with New England winters, and they're coming up. The fall, at least. The fall's coming up. That's bad, too. All this is to say that I'm feeling a bit drained at the moment. So I apologize if I'm not giving you the high-energy vocals that you've come to expect on this show. In the interview you're about to hear, Max refers to a lot of stuff that we decided needs some additional context. So there are several moments where I cut in I interrupt myself I interrupt Max with extra information. If you notice a shift in the sound in my voice when this happens, don't be alarmed. Those are the sweet, dulcet tones of a newly vaccinated Kevin. Anyway, a bit about this book and its author. Maximilian Hess, who was clearly born with a name destined to write about international finance, is the founder of Entamena Advisory, a London-based political risk and international relations advisory firm. He's also a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. His book, Economic War, published by Hearst, honestly opened my eyes to a side of the invasion of Ukraine that I've often ignored, out of fear of numbers and economics that I don't easily understand. That maybe makes me a lousy candidate to interview Hess about his book, but I went ahead and did it anyway, in the hope that I'm coming at these issues from the same perspective as some of our listeners. Also, Max is an excellent writer. The book is understandable to non-experts, and the subject matter deserves broad attention. So let's jump in. I think this might come from the introduction, but I read more than the introduction. I want to assure you of that. <laughs> but the, you have some good lines in there. You have this line in the beginning there is no rules based international order, but there is an international economic order. And understanding the West's privileged position is key to understanding what would come to be at stake in the economic war that is between Russia and the West right now. And throughout the book, you, you point out that Moscow seems to appreciate the privileged position of the West, the imperviousness of the West especially the USA, better probably than many Americans and even many American leaders, it would seem, or American politicians. But Putin has nevertheless miscalculated almost every step of the war and the confrontation. So I wonder, why do you think he's managed to sort of perceive this fundamental truth that a lot of people miss, and yet he still keeps stumbling?
1: You know, I think that the fundamental truth and the reality of it is clear when you're viewing it from the outside, right? Uh, in the U.S., we have our, you know, debt ceiling debates pretty regularly, we threaten to shut down the government, we do all these things. You know, of course, the the dollar is our currency and used there, but uh, it's hard for us to appreciate how the dollar plays such a role internationally that no other currency does. Right? Even hearing that 60% of trade or 60% of reserves thereabouts uh, are in dollars internationally, that already is probably not that common knowledge. And then, secondly, the actual impacts of that on the financial system and on the sort of demand for uh, U.S. dollar assets, and then therefore uh, debt, as the sort of um, would have seen as the risk-free rate and the government-backed treasury bonds throughout the world, the sort of implications of that, um, both financially and geopolitically, um, then are, are quite significant. And so, you know, again, while you'll see that easier from outside, it's not just about sort of the financial aspects and those macroeconomic ones we touched on, but it's also about the political results coming from that. So, you know, one of the clearest examples is U.S. sanctions have effective extraterritoriality. We say that if you violate sanctions, Set in U.S. law anywhere in in the world, so long as that transaction involves dollars, it comes under the purview of the U.S. Uh, Justice Department, U.S. Treasury Department sets the sanctions, the State Department that helps enforce and deserve them. That you therefore have to be fined or be banned from doing transactions in the rest of that system, and then no major financial uh, institution will deal with you because they can't risk their access to dollars or paying out large fines. Banks that have violated those sanctions before, you know, uh, BNP Paribas, for example, pay almost $9 billion in funds.
0: In July 2014, the French multinational universal bank and financial services holding company, BNB Paribas, pled guilty to violating laws against money laundering and violating U.S. sanctions. The bank reportedly laundered up to $100 billion from Sudan, Iran, and Cuba, even processing sanctioned transactions after it came under investigation by the U.S. Justice Department.
1: Whereas Russian sanctions, you know, the Kremlin publishes its own sanctions list. Many colleagues and, and others on it, you know, their impact is just to ban one from coming to Russia. Nobody's not going to open you a bank account because, you know, the Kremlin has put you on, uh, on, on the sanctions list. Um, and so that's, you know, the other, you know, more clear example. But uh, the book really aims to try to get at some of the efforts of this throughout, you know, the traditional economy as well and in, in the international alliances around this system. But even in emerging technologies, right? Cryptocurrency is often shilled is something that all oh, gets you out of the control of central governments and the like. Whereas when Russia helped Venezuela try to do a similar effort, um, you know, sanctions were able to shut it down. Uh, in the more recent sort of full-scale economic war, we've seen Treasury simultaneously escalate uh, its targeting of sanction of um, cryptocurrency firms alongside other branches of the government. So this is really a, a political power domestically and abroad um, that results from that privilege. And uh, Russia challenging that order. Putin sees it much more often and is inclined, um, feels himself inclined to fight against it. In
0: 2018, President Trump, we remember him, banned all transactions in the U.S. using Venezuela's cryptocurrency, the Petro, the ostensibly oil-backed cryptocurrency Venezuela's government launched in February 2018 to gain capital amid its ongoing economic crisis. In the executive order, Trump said the currency was an attempt to circumvent U.S. sanctions imposed for democratic backsliding. An investigation by Simon Schuster at Time magazine later revealed that the Petro was in fact a collaboration, a half-hidden joint venture between Venezuelan and Russian officials and businessmen, whose aim was to erode the power of U.S. sanctions, ultimately hoping to undermine the U.S. dollar itself and the world order you're hearing about so much on today's podcast episode with these motives in mind Washington and many allies have come to suspect cryptocurrency companies of evading sanctions against Russia and helping Moscow illegally move funds outside of Russia as a result crypto platforms one after another have been tightening their rules for Russian clients one of the themes of the book whenever you you address sort of the conseque- the consequences of the economic war in the West, whether it's in in Europe or in the United States, you talk about you address the sort of the the challenges of of keeping unity a united front against against the challenge that Russia poses to economic war to the world economy. You're talking about the West as sort of impervious, and you say that you even have a line where you say even if the Kremlin were to conquer Kiev, it would not in and of itself affect the United States' power in any significant way. But then, like I think a page later, you write that Russian success in Ukraine could potentially enable Putin to realize his vision of an alternative economic order, one in which the US, you know, is no longer so dominant. And how do you reconcile those two things?
1: (laughs) You know, I I think I want to break it down by answering in two parts. So first, what is that threat and Russia's view of it? And then secondly, uh, hopefully that makes it easier to understand the importance of unity and the threat of divisions, particularly between the United States and Europe. So the way that I view Russia's position is that Putin has uh, rallied so hard against the international order. He's pushed alternative efforts far more than any other uh, country has. I ultimately believe that even though he has some ideas about an alternative international economic order, he's really set out to destroy the international economic order. And that's where I think the big difference is between sort of the debate on on Russia and China. I think China wants to be the number one in the international economic order, but, uh, you know, but it knows it has a long challenge coming to get there and sees it as an eventual effort. Uh, Russia, however, um, because of Vladimir Putin's decision making, wants to actively uh, destroy that order. You know, the most recent example was uh, the BRICS conference. Of course, Putin couldn't attend, but at the same time, um, you know, was calling for talk about a new currency system.
0: This August, during the 2023 BRICS Summit in Johannesburg, South Africa, that's BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. At this summit, Brazil's president called for the creation of a common currency for trade and investment between each other as a means of reducing their vulnerability to U.S. dollar exchange rate fluctuations. Vladimir Putin, who did not attend in person because he faces an arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court, said in a 20-minute pre-recorded video that the BRICS group should become a trading bloc representing the global majority. The objective, irreversible process of de-dollarizing our economic ties is gaining momentum, he claimed. But that was a bit of an overstatement.
1: But ultimately, China uh, and the other BRICS countries weren't willing to take that up. The threat that you know, Putin therefore poses is, is quite uh, different. And I think that you know, even China isn't necessarily always on board with that, but certainly it's something that he will continue to escalate alongside the war in Ukraine because of how much he sees them together. Now, to turn to the second part, my attempted answer it's important to look at the same example. For a BRICS alternate currency to work, for Russia to be able to build up, um, or at least work with China to build up an alternate order, take the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Except for South Africa, which is sadly in in a deep economic crisis and political one, those countries are all major surplus earners. They um, export more than they import. Uh, Russia commodities, China, cheap manufactured goods. What they effectively therefore have is they have a glut of of, um, savings and particular savings in foreign and earnings in foreign currencies. Now, for them to establish a system around that by which they could unite and trade freely in which an alternate currency, whether that be uh, the Chinese yuan or a supposed BRICS currency, to create a sufficient system, you need to have open capital markets. You need the money to flow freely. Uh, this is not something that happens in, in, in Russia, uh, India, and China. But if you want to move money into the U.S., you know, as so long as you're doing so legally in real business, you know, go ahead. Money so, what does that mean right.
0: exactly? Does that mean like if I'm a business person, I can't go buy a bunch of Chinese currency? So or... if you're
1: a Chinese company and you've just earned you know, a million, uh, the equivalent of a million dollars in profits, and you say, I want to take my million dollars in profits and send it somewhere internationally abroad, the United States or or India or Russia. Uh, You need government approval to do so. So if you're a Chinese businessman and you have criticized the government on social media and you want to flee the country, you can't just send your, your money abroad. Or if you're a foreign company earning large profits there by, you know, selling um, products to Chinese consumers or that you have gotten from investing in a Chinese factory, you can't just say, I want to send all my money. I'm worried about the Chinese. You know, there's going to be a political crisis. I'm just going to send all my money to the U.S.
0: Is this why when I read about Hollywood movies earning so many millions of dollars in China, I also see like a caveat that they only actually get to take like so such a percentage of those box office
1: exactly yeah or tesla you know earning money in china now and then you know they have to reinvest it in china or or can be pressured to do so so when, for example, when there are crises right around the world, whether it be the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, which was certainly started out of the U.S. markets and debt markets, not government debt, but um, consumer debt spread around the world, or in the COVID crisis, what do markets do? They see money pile into U.S. treasuries because that's the sort of safe haven asset for the world, and you're free to do so. And then you know, once the crisis passes, you're free to sell those off, move your money abroad, nobody's going to stop you. Russia, India, and China. So they they earn all these effective surpluses, but then they don't have a common market to go invested in in debt in something profitable. Um, especially because political relations aren't perfect between any of those countries. You know, if you're a Russian business, you don't want to keep all your money in India because what if the U.S. gives India something that makes it you know tighter to enforce sanctions or, or so on and so forth. But so you know you you need um large deficit markets and ones with open capital to put that in. The two large deficit markets in the world are. Um, the united states the european union um the uk playing a minor but self-induced declining role so you you need that to really build up the system so if there is a fundamental divide between the us and europe then you effectively end up in a position where uh, that unity may no longer exist. And the euro is actually, you know, despite the Europe having its own financial crisis in 2011, 2012, and questions about its willingness to backstop common debt, the euro is the closest thing you have to a major internationally traded alternative currency to come about into existence since um, the dollar came about, or certainly since the dollar took on its international role in the aftermath of World War II. So, um, you know, European countries trade almost entirely with each other within you know, the Eurozone, certainly, and even um, non-Eurozone EU countries predominantly in Euros. Um, but still, internationally, they'll, they'll do a lot of their trade in dollars because other counterparties do, but the Euro has grown a bit there. So if the Euro were to become a market that, say, was, you know, favored by Russia, China, and no longer on board with the U.S., it could then, one, you know, the risk of, of violating U.S. sanctions would be lower, and so the enforceability of that would be lower. U.S. debt would be in less demand, so it would be more expensive expensive. expensive for the U.S. to run deficits as we do and and potentially uh, much riskier. The you know ultimate impact uh of that on u s geopolitical power uh would be very significant. I think you know the dollar actually plays more a role in our geopolitical power than even um, many branches of, of the military do themselves I mean, not, not to say that they don't but but that's just how important the the dollar really is and so you know if if Putin were to break Europe or break the u s western alliance over Ukraine, then as I said even taking Kiev wouldn't necessarily do that, but it might, and uh that would be a fundamental mental threat to, to both the international economic order, um, that despite the U.S. having privileges often used to excess that nobody else has, and I don't want to you know, forgive all those ex- express those excesses so um, blithely, we can talk about them more, um, and why a lot of the threats are, are self-induced. But the if that were to collapse, the U.S. would lose its geopolitical power, Russia would gain much more um, influence in Europe, uh, and the, the core international order, what little bits of it work, and what few rules there occasionally are, would uh, all, if not cease to exist, be greatly degradated.
0: I will ask you one more question about this, this, uh, the Western alliance, essentially. So I've been kind of, I mean, I'm American. I've been asking you several questions now about kind of whether American leaders appreciate their privilege when it comes to the dollar and the extra territorial reach of american sanctions what about the cost of this because I, I one of the another theme that it, that recurs in the book is that uh, that europe has actually i mean europe has become more dependent on the united states as a result of this invasion and washington is essentially benefiting from that it, it's possible that american leaders might exp- Not exploit this, but but not appreciate that they have to kind of meet Europe halfway, and that this this is potentially a a threat to Western unity. But you, you nevertheless you write that Europe is the West's weak link, and that Germany specifically is the is the greatest challenge to Western unity. So can you reconcile for me how America is the is kind of benefiting from certainly in the energy market the changes brought about by the invasion, and yet Europe is kind of where you seem most concerned?
1: I think to answer the first part of your question. Um, you know, what you have to understand is, is this is exactly where I think our failure to understand this issue, um, speaking from an American perspective, is so acute. Right. Um, the. Focus, for example, on NATO. It's 2% of defense spending target. Effectively, that's a complete misunderstanding of this relationship. The uh, reality is, is that the U.S. provides the security guarantees for Europe, and in exchange, Europe is a supportive member um, of this system. Uh, it effectively gets to save on, on the security cost. Uh, in, in exchange, the U.S. gets some advantages in this system.
0: The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal, or the Iran deal, is an arrangement on the Iranian nuclear program reached in July 2015 between Iran and the P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, China, France, Russia, the UK, and the United States, plus Germany, together with the European Union. The agreement provided that in return for verifiably abiding by its commitments to spin down its nuclear weapons program, Iran would receive relief from the U.S., EU, and U.N. Security Council nuclear-related sanctions. In May 2018, President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the deal, delivering in part on a campaign promise and calling the agreement a horrible one-sided deal that should never ever have been made. Other parties to the plan said they would work to preserve it, even after the U.S. withdrawal. But that was easier said than done, Max explains.
1: So, you know, even though the European countries were all aghast at the decision to unilaterally withdraw from the JCPOA, the Iran deal under the Trump administration, you know, they still enforce effectively U.S. sanctions uh, on Iran. A European bank can't go and do business uh, with Iran because of the threat of U.S. sanctions and and because that activity would, if it was sanctioned itself, would um, pay, uh, would no longer be able to do business in Europe uh, or it could pay major fines. As I said earlier, you know, BNP Paribas paid a very large one, HSBC, other European banks um, have paid them as well, as well as numerous other European financial institutions. So, you know, that's fundamentally the exchange. If every European country increased its defense spending to 2% of GDP in the U.S., you know, only the U.S. would wipe that out if we cut 15% of our um, defense spending. Uh, You know, our spending is already so much larger that uh, small European countries making that difference just just isn't going to move the needle. European defense spending is increasing in the aftermath of um, Putin's full-scale invasion against Ukraine, finally at a relatively significant pace, but, but still the, the U.S. will be by far and away the leader if you compounded that pace out over, you know, even the next 20, 30 years. So, you know, that's the sort of fundamental um, position we have. I think that uh, there are certainly threats in the U.S. You know, there, there are many who have voiced poor understandings of this on both sides of the aisle, and there's historically, you know, certainly, uh, but more recently very much similar threats coming from Trump and uh, so some other Republican candidates who fail to understand this relationship. The threats in Europe, though, really uh, also come from failures to understand some of their positions in it. You know, Germany was so uh, uh, in favor of Nord Stream 2 for a long time, despite it giving Putin significant um, influence there, and LNG now um, playing essentially the saving role uh, in Germany. But, the German economy in particular is is poised to go into recession. Uh, It is likely to have a significant impact on its manufacturing base, the overall increased energy prices, even if they're down from uh, their peaks last year, and that's helping uh, bring inflation down as well. And then Europe, more broadly, has a lot of um, other soft spots and the European Union sort of failures as an institution in its own limitations and issuing common debt, only done ever for uh, the corona crisis. But sadly, that effort hasn't really been built on, as well as internal divisions and the need for uh, unity amongst the EU on major policies do pose real risks to, to this fight in the short term, uh, and therefore to the system overall if they're exploited uh, in the long term.
0: Turning to Russia, you write, again, repeatedly throughout the book that the, the true effects, or the, like, the, maybe the most fundamental effects of Western sanctions won't be felt really until unless you're looking at the long term. And this is, you, you come to avi- the aviation industry a few times, state shipping, oil tankers, telecoms, finances, certainly oil production. Do you think that these effects in the long term, are these something that Russia can, can weather with sufficient resolve? Or are we talking about a kind of fallout that is so significant that it will actually cripple the country's you know, capacity to wage war?
1: The Russian living standards have uh, never gone back to their 2013 level. Even when there's you know some GD- GDP growth in some, some of those years, uh, the, they've still remained below. And, and certainly sanctions have restricted them uh, far, far further. That is uh, a choice of, of the Putin regime. I do not see that reversing as long as it, it is in power. The impact in terms of crippling the economy and The war production, you know, that still very much remains to be seen. Sanctions are not a you know magical tool. Um, They will continue to degrade the Russian economy, force it to spend more resources for the same gains as before. We already see how much Putin is doubling down on military spending now. But, you know, Russian missile production right now appears to be actually in excess of its pre-2022 levels, despite the waves of, of chip sanctions in particular. Russia's
0: federal allocations to the military have become harder and harder to track. Much of the spending is now classified, and guesses about the armed forces' total budget vary. For example, Bloomberg has reported that the Russian military's budget will jump more than 4 trillion rubles in 2024 from 3.9% of GDP to 6%. That increase alone is more than Russia's entire 3.6 trillion ruble defense expenditures in 2021. In September 2023, the New York Times reported that Russia has managed to overcome sanctions and export controls imposed by the West to expand its missile production beyond pre-war levels. Tank production too has apparently doubled. In the competition to keep churning out fresh ammo for the war in Ukraine, Russia's production costs are also far lower than the West, in part because Moscow is sacrificing safety and quality in its effort to build weapons more cheaply. For example, one expert told the New York Times that it costs a Western country as much as $6,000 to make a single 155mm artillery round, whereas it costs Russia roughly 10 times less to manufacture a similar round.
1: I think the macroeconomic sanctions, though, really will constrain the Russian economy and and make it far more expensive to continue this fight for the long term. Those chip sanctions, oil sanctions, others will continue to be refined and adjusted, and Russia will move and respond to them in turn. I think the best and sort of simplest way is is to put it as uh, an analogy, which is effectively as a result um, of the war and and the sanctions response, Russia's an economy with Cancer. Now it's hydrocarbon wealth uh means that uh, and other raw commodity wealth means that it effectively has access to the best medicine possible. You know, the, it is able to keep off that pain, take a, essentially chemotherapy, you know, stuff with its own costs to uh, mitigate it in, in the short term. How long that fight can go on for is very hard to say, but eventually it, it will not be sustainable. Of course, if Putin wins in Ukraine and breaks the, the Western alliance, then, um, you know, uh, uh, that uh, cancer could be, be overcome. But uh, failing to do those things, then eventually Russia can last a very long time. Time is an autarkic, you know, even non-capitalist economy. Of course, was the, the legacy of the Soviet Union. It did survive for, for 70 years. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not saying that the sanctions mean guarantee the, the fall of, of the, the regime either. But I do mean that under them, Russia can never again be a truly wealthy country and, and developing unless it breaks the system.
0: And so do you think that is it is it kind of a question of, of resolve on both sides it seems like Russia is swallowing much heavier i mean obviously Ukraine is the one enduring the most in all of this but between Russia and the west Russia is enduring tougher is having a tougher time but has greater resolve. Whereas in the West, we're talking about problems with unity, but the, the what they're weathering, I mean, Europe is weathering more than the United States, but they're the, because of their privilege, economically speaking, um, and pro- in many other ways too, I'm sure, <laughs> but we're talking about economics, they have to deal with less, and yet their unity is, is in question. And in Russia, there is talk, obviously, of collapse and so on, but that seems to be, for now at least, for relatively far-fetched when do you think of it this as like a competition of resolve or is it is it something else capacity or something
1: yeah no uh, r- resolve is is the key point and you know the one other factor i i would stress is that russia is not uh putin is not democratically accountable you know, the in the West, short-term costs um, can have a very sharp uh, impact at the ballot box. You know, and next year there are elections in the European Union Parliament, uh, in the United Kingdom probably at the end of the year, and uh, in, in the United States uh, next November as well. You know, the if Putin can find a way, and I expect him to do so, to try to cause economic pain through supply shocks uh, ahead of that, um, if that means that candidates more favorable to him, for example, um, will have a better chance, then that's uh, exactly what he'll try to do. You know, we've seen actually even recently, uh, you know, the grain, uh, Russia's decision to withdraw from the Black Sea Grain initiative has not had a tremendous impact on global food prices, but it has caused European countries to squabble with uh, each other and countries to line up positions, you know, Slovakia um, before its election, the the candidate who won the largest share of the vote there, did a lot of complaining about um, Ukrainian grain, Poland. Uh, There are similar similar dynamics going on right now. So that democratic accountability and the fact that um, if there's short-term pain, people can can vote to change and we usually um, vote for an alternative, uh, even if that alternative isn't actually more effective in dealing with the problem. You know, they feel like they they can do, do something about it.
0: In the spring of 2023, several EU members, including Poland, imposed a temporary ban on imports of Ukrainian grain into their countries. The logic here was that cheaper Ukrainian grain was destabilizing their domestic agricultural markets. In September, EU refused to endorse an extension of the import ban, but Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia announced national-level prohibitions to keep the policy in place. After threatening to dispute the restrictions at the World Trade Organization, Ukraine put those complaints on hold and is now in consultations to find a compromise solution. That could be an uphill battle for Kiev, though. In late September, in the context of the grain dispute, Poland's president accused Ukraine of behaving like a drowning person, clinging to anything available. Before the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine, Viktor Medvedchuk was perhaps the best-known pro-Russian politician in Ukraine. To underscore his close relationship with the Kremlin, people usually point out that Putin became the godfather to Medvedchuk's youngest daughter in 2004. In 2021, the Ukrainian authorities charged Medvedchuk with treason and placed him under house arrest. After a brief escape and humiliating capture, Medvedchuk was ultimately sent to Russia in September 2022, along with 55 Russian POWs in exchange for more than 200 Ukrainian prisoners including 188 members of the Azov Regiment, which is regarded in Russia essentially as a modern-day Nazi formation. So it was quite a trade to make. Another prominent Ukrainian oligarch is Dmitry Furtish, who for years helped funnel money from Moscow into the campaigns of pro-Russia politicians in Ukraine. The U.S. Justice Department has characterized him as a highly placed associate of Russian organized crime. And he's been stuck in Austria since he was arrested in March 2014, And he's still fighting extradition to the USA, where he's wanted for bribery, racketeering, and money laundering. Actually, Minsk has even granted Belarusian diplomatic status to Furtish as a further protection against extradition to the U.S. In June this year, Medusa published an article by journalist and researcher Konstantin Skorkin about the wartime crackdown in Ukraine on pro-Russian oligarchs and the seizure of Russian businesses' assets. Skorkin noted that the de-oligarchization, oof, what a word, now vigorously pursued by Zelensky's team, could lead to a re-oligarchization when the managers of major state enterprises and business people loyal to the state emerge from the shadows as a new class of elites. The strengthening of the state sector raises the risks of corruption, which remains one of the main obstacles to Ukraine's accession to the EU, argues Skorkin. One what, what of the inadvertent consequences of the invasion that you highlight in Ukraine is that it has, the invasion the war, the full-scale war has weakened oligarchic influence in Ukraine. And you describe this as something that the West had been pushing for to weaken the oligarchs and that, that Putin has inadvertently facilitated or helped or you know expedited or something. This struck me because obviously this is like, weakening the oligarchs is one of the things that's attributed to Putin coming to power. That's like one of the first things he did was go after the oligarchs. And that obviously, May, was you know led to big changes in his in the regime in the presidential administration in the power of the federal government and so on in Russia. What do you expect the consequences to be in Ukraine of the weakening of the oligarchs?
1: The so perhaps best example um, is uh, Rina Akhmetov. Um, the owner of DTEC and, and Medinvest. Medinvest, you know, perhaps best known to your listeners as uh, the ultimate parent company of Azovstal, where there was the holdout. Akhmetov was seen as one of the most pro-Russian uh, oligarchs before the Maidan revolution. He flew, Yanukovych flew on his plane to sign the sort of sale of Ukraine to, to Russia deal at the end of uh, 2013, in which he um, agreed to move towards the Eurasian Economic Union and took a poison pill Russian bailout. But Akhmetov uh, moved to keep on the sort of Ukrainian side in 2014, effectively as the oligarch who has changed his position um, the most. But even he, you know, just um, into the war agreed to give up his television stations and his assets there. So, you know, their position and change and influence on Ukrainian society has really been removed. And just this week, we had European Union foreign ministers meeting abroad for the first time uh, in Ukraine and, um, you know, highlighting some of the success in Ukraine's anti-corruption efforts. Of course, the oligarch with whom um, Zelensky was most associated, uh, Igor Kolomoisky, another controversial individual with a long history of the London international courts and disputes with the Ukrainian government, but who was pro-Ukrainian quite openly in 2014 and funded militias in the Donbass then, pro-Ukrainian ones, of course. You know, Zelensky has gone after him and reportedly taken away his citizenship, and now, um, since the book's publication even advanced the, the court charges against him, and we've seen him arrested just the other week. So even, you know, the the oligarch with whom he was most most associated with Zelensky has been taken down a notch. And that is hugely uh, significant in Ukraine's um, fight against corruption overall to remove um, the oligarchic influence, a huge... Way to weaken the potential for for pro Russian uh, influence that has existed in the past, and you know that's not to say that that Ukraine without political reforms doesn't risk um, you know potential new oligarchs in the future. But that is certainly you know one pretty dramatic impact on the political landscape of Ukraine. That um, you know I'm not saying it deserves the same attention as as the horrors of the war and and how uh, that has helped reshape and unite society in, in in very significant ways. But that certainly when talking about the economic components. Uh, as I do. Um, I think deserves to be
0: highlighted. Speaking of the Russian atrocities in Ukraine, just I mean the fact of the invasion itself, reparations are something that come come up a lot. And You mention it a few points in the book. Do you is it, do you think it's realistic to to talk to think about that to assume that Russia could ever be forced into paying reparations? Because I mean, at the face of it, I've always assumed like, well, you don't you don't get reparations unless you like conquer the enemy, and then you can make them do whatever. But reading your book, it's like, well, actually, maybe because Russia will essentially in the long term, need to return to the to the world economy if it wishes to, you know, enjoy a, its former or, or some kind of, if it wishes to raise its standard of living, which presumably eventually it would like to do, even long after the war has ended, let's say. This could be a, you know, the entry fee is that you, there needs to be some kind of reparations. So do you see this as, do you see reparations as a, as a realistic possibility?
1: I think in, you know, it's something that, should, that has to be uh, kept in mind, um, but as sort of something that that I envisage now, uh, no. Um, you know, It would only come with Russia's full-scale collapse, um, or at least the full-scale collapse of the Putin system. Uh, there's no way I think Putin could, could agree to it, or, or would agree to it. Uh, the, the West does have significant power uh, to do so, and um, to begin thinking about it now, and I do think that there hasn't been enough uh, effort there. So, you know, Russia has more, there's uh, estimated to be more than $300 billion in Russian government assets that have been frozen uh, as as a result of this, financial assets and, and uh, those held abroad or through clearing systems, the West has the ability to really dictate uh, what happens with those. Um, you know, there the are those who always complain, both in the legal and, and economic worlds. Oh, you know, you can't set a precedent, can't rule obvious debt. But I don't personally subscribe to the argument that that would set some kind of universal precedent that other countries would be worried about. And those same systems and the structure that we talked about earlier meant anyway, that, you know, the alternatives uh, don't exist there yet. So your, um, your so attitude
0: is just is take take that money, rebuild re- Ukraine with it.
1: My attitude is to find the right way to do so. Uh, that, or at the very least, make clear that we are willing to do so uh, and threaten to do so to further add to, to Western overall leverage. I don't think that the Kremlin will respond to that. I think that the Kremlin essentially considers that money gone. So yes, I, I, I think that um there needs to be a real effort to, to try to find a way to ensure that that money, or at least um, a significant portion of it, goes there. But the fact that these issues stay out of the limelight means that the political drive and Push to get that done isn't there? I mean, even uh, here in London, my local uh, football team, Chelsea Football Club, Roman Abramovich, of course, has more than three billion dollars. Sanctioned Russian oligarch who used to own the team and was forced to sell it after sanctioning after the war. You know, the the three billion dollars uh, or even more from that sale that he pledged would be donated to. Uh, Ukraine um, after initially saying the victims of the war and leaving that blank uh, you know that still hasn't been um, distributed yet and that's been caught up in a whole bunch of ease and that's you know that's something that people actually do care about because it has to do with football you know soccer the, the national sport here um, but even then you know the uh, the the will for political action is is far slower. And certainly I think that it's long overdue that an effort um, begin um, organized. You know, I I have plenty of my ideas about how it could work, but uh, what it really needs is full institutional government backing and saying, you know, this has to be a priority for the EU, the UK, uh, and the United States because they have various legal says in most of those assets um, to, to start working on finding a way to do so now. It should have been done, you know, Eighteen months ago, but now's um, better than ever.
0: One of the takeaways I had from this book is that, at least when reading about the war, a lot of what I see is is that uh, when when the battle lines finally settle, and you know, hopefully, it's with the nineteen ninety one. Border, but if it's something else, okay, you know, wherever it, wherever it finally settles, and there's a ceasefire, or an end of the war, you know, the end period or ellipses or something, that there needs, there will have to be some kind of, you know, Israel-like relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine. There'll have to be some, and the West will have to sort of keep. There'll have to be some kind of sustained flow of military aid to keep Ukraine armed enough for there to be a deterrent to Russia just invading again when it feels like it. Reading your book, I realized, or it occurred to me that uh, that. Equally, or even more so, the sort of long-term guarantee for Ukraine's safety is perhaps actually in economics. Like, do you, when you think about how Ukraine's safety in the long term is guaranteed, how do you, where do you stack up, like military guarantees and economic guarantees? Is it like equal, or in your mind, it's the economic war that is really vital? It's the crucial factor for long term.
1: I mean, uh, for Ukraine, um, certainly the you know, security factor um, um, and, and the precedence of lives always takes pre- uh, um, is precedence over um, the importance of money. Um, Ukraine's you know, answer, I assume, to that question about long-term security aid and the like is NATO membership, right? If Russia is de- defeated, you know, let's leave aside where those lines are. But, but um, and, and there's some kind of agreement and, and, and Ukraine is then able to join NATO and its Common Defense Clause, then yes, uh, that would provide the security guarantee. That security guarantee is only real if there's an understanding of the economic relationship uh, and those mutual benefits that we discussed earlier between um, Europe and the United States. You know, NATO and the EU are are separate organizations, and there are some countries like Austria uh, and Ireland that are members of the EU and not members of NATO. Uh, But, um, you know, really finding a way to understand that balance is hugely important for your. European and U.S. unity and security, as we discussed in the long term. Uh, But for Ukraine, it being integrated, you know, more fully um, uh, economically uh, into Europe and the United States, you know, that is something that um, is itself going to be a real question and a challenge. And, you know, we can't just uh, assume that Ukraine joins the EU, joins NATO, and it's all roses. You know, the EU's agricultural policy would need a complete reworking. Uh, If Ukraine, you know, the giant breadbasket that's far more agriculturally productive than European countries are and were to join. Uh, of course, the reconstruction funds are, are, are a whole other question about how the EU. You know, even the three hundred billion in Russian money is, is is not enough to rebuild the damages of the war, let alone. How Uh, Ukraine grow. Um, But Western economic aid and and particular financial guarantees and and investment support can can play a big role there. But no, you know, while while I think the economic structure is important for the international order and for the global outcome of this conflict, uh, of course, for Ukraine, the the security issue is paramount. And there may even be a future in which, um, you know, economics with Russia and economic ties can help um, provide that for Ukraine, you know, as, as I, not to give it all away, but, um, you know, in the conclusion, I talk about that uh, if Russia is defeated and there is a, a democratic and very least non-aggressive um, Russia in the future, that it should be brought back into the international system. Um, because I think a regime in Russia that is democratic and actually politically accountable will see uh, that that way to growth keeps keeps it in the system and there therefore, would mitigate the risk against uh, Ukraine, of course, because Russia isn't democratically accountable, that doesn't do so right now, uh, and won't as long as the Putin system is around. But the international order um, is also important for um, peace between countries, uh, at least that are democracies. (laughs)
0: Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.